Bring spring color inside this season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. Add a pop of blue to your kitchen with the Bare exclusive color Arrowhead Lake. Or a splash of Amazon jungle to your living room. Bring a cool breeze to your bathroom with sea glass. Whatever your inspiration, start your spring with durable colors that last all season with Bare Premium Plus paint starting at $28.98 a gallon at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash boys. On January 1st, 2021, Moynihan Train Hall officially opened to the public. A new wing catering to passengers of Amtrak and Long Island Railroad trains at Penn Station. At a price tag of $1.6 billion, this new addition to the bustling but unloved underground train station has been decades in the making. The new hall rises within the old James A. Farley Post Office building, first constructed in 1912. Its grandeur, its monumental facade and Corinthian colonnade meant to parallel the original Penn Station, which once stood across the street from it. Now, this is a big day for train and history lovers and the newest chapter in the saga of Pennsylvania Station, originally built in 1910, and the saga of one of America's greatest train companies, Pennsylvania Railroad. So for the next two weeks here on the Bowery Boys podcast, we're going to tell the whole story using a couple older episodes from our back catalog. This week, it's the story of the construction of Penn Station. Now, not just the station, but the revolutionary tunnels underneath the Hudson River, linking New York to New Jersey. This is a tale of engineering marvels, political haggling, and extraordinary visions from the brother of one of America's great Impressionist painters. In next week's show, we'll continue the story, following the career of Penn Station and its eventual and controversial destruction. We recorded the following show in the spring of 2009, and the song Pennsylvania 65000 was first recorded by Glenn Miller and his orchestra in 1940, referencing the old telephone number at the Hotel Pennsylvania, located at 7th Avenue, across the street from Old Penn Station. So tickets, please. Relax and recline as Tom and I explore the origin story of Pennsylvania Railroad and Pennsylvania Station. Since today's Penn Station isn't even an above-ground building that you can see today. Um, <laughs> Which so, makes it a little difficult. So people, right. you know, there, you may actually, uh, people who don't live here may actually not know really where it is. Can you set us up uh, location-wise? Yes, we are going over to the west side between 31st and 33rd Street and between 7th and 8th Avenue. Today, that area above ground is Madison Square Garden and the whole Penn Plaza office complex. A really homey place to hang out. 
However, it is one of the busiest places in the entire city, with 600,000 passengers a day who are streaming into and out of that transit hub. It is the biggest transit hub in the city because it services not just uh, intercity train travel, which today is served by Amtrak, but also the New Jersey Transit, the Long Island Railroad, and it's also a major subway hub, you know, serving lines one, two, three, the A, C, and E. So this is a very busy place. I I just thought it was curious, by the way, that you got to Long Island using Penn Station and not Grand Central, which is actually more eastern than Penn Station. But we'll, but we'll, we'll tell exactly why. Yeah, the, the, I think we've got an answer for that. Don't we we? Do, yes, we do. I mentioned the major intercity railroad today is Amtrak. I should say major because, of course, New Jersey Transit and the LIRR takes people off to other cities. Nothing to sneeze at. No. But before there was Amtrak, there was the Pennsylvania Railroad. The Pennsylvania Railroad obviously created the original Penn Station, but was for a lot of its history the biggest and one of the most influential railroads in the United States. But let me back up a little bit, start, rewind our story. Back to the mid-19th century when, you know, railroads are starting to really change America. Railroads are fueling American growth. They're, of course, they're creating wealth and they're distributing wealth and expanding the population throughout the United States. So the company at the forefront of all this was the Pennsylvania Railroad. From one source I read, I quote, It could handle the greatest volume of traffic measured in tons and freights and passengers carried per mile than any other transportation system. Eventually, the Pennsylvania Railroad would have 12,000 miles of road and over 30,000 miles of track. I mean, that's a lot of choo-choo for your buck there. (laughs) A variant of the Penn Railroad started in 1823, and it started as a very rudimentary train that went from Philadelphia to Columbia, Pennsylvania. Several years later, it does receive a state charter and expands throughout the entire state of Pennsylvania in 1846. Now, in the 1860s, Penn Railroad really expanded outside of Pennsylvania, and slowly, like throughout the decades until the 1890s, they just expanded all through the United States. Now, in New York in particular, they got here in two different routes. In 1885, um, it was a New York to D.C. route that they bought, and then a couple years later in 87, it was New York to Chicago route, and that was actually a very big, very popular route, one of their biggest ones. And of course, they had competition here, competing directly with Vanderbilt's uh, New York Central Railroad. Exactly, and here's the thing that the New York Central Railroad had that Penn Railroad didn't, and this was really like almost an Achilles heel for them because it, it really stunted their growth. And that was servicing Manhattan. Like they, they could not cross the Hudson River or an old parlance, I guess we called that the North River back then. The only way to get into Manhattan at this time was there was a bridge over the Harlem River. And who owned and who controlled that bridge? Vanderbilt. And the New York Central Railroad. And of course, the New York Central went into Grand Central, Grand Grand Central Terminal, or depot at the time. This frustrates, of course, um, all the presidents of the Penn Railroad. They had a depot in Exchange Place in Jersey City, but all of these railroads, there's many railroads at this time, they all had these depots along New Jersey, along the Hudson River, and then what happened is passengers got out, and then those train stations also owned a ferry service, and those ferries would cross the Hudson, and in the case of the Penn Railroad, their station on the Manhattan side was on West Street, which was this unspectacular place to get out, <laughs> especially if you're like a fine lady who's been on a right. long trip, and she's about to go into Manhattan. She would step out, and there would be all these vendors and the muddy streets. Rotting and- fruit and cargo 
but it seems like the trip over at least would be kind of romantic. You know, you get off the train and you step onto a ferry boat and you cross the river. We're talking the Hudson River in the late 19th century, one of the busiest water thoroughfares in the entire world. There's so much traffic. Your little ferry you're trying to cut across <laughs> with these big boats. On top of it, there's just so much traffic. On right. top of it, in the wintertime, it would often freeze, and then you couldn't even get over. So, And then um, once you got over there, you had to board some kind of trolley or try to hail a cab or walk along West Street. So it's all of this that's weighing heavily on the mind of the seventh president of the Penn Railroad. Now, his name is Alexander Cassatt. Alexander was actually born extremely wealthy in 1839. He was born in Pittsburgh to a, a, a banking family. As those who live in the trappings of wealth, he traveled through Europe. He basically could have just lived off money and just been one of those people, but he actually was quite talented, and he actually was into engineering. And he even worked at the railroad. He was a rich boy working on the railroad. Exactly. So despite his wealth, he actually, like, you know, put on his overalls and, like, kind of worked his way up to the Penn Railroad system. By the way, Tom, if that name sounds a it little familiar... Cassatt. Now, where have we heard Cassatt? In the, in, the, in the late 19th century <laughs> uh-huh. here? Well, you may have heard of his sister, Mary Cassatt. She happens to be one of the most preeminent American Impressionist painters yes. ever, who ever lived. Um, as a matter of fact, if you go to the Philadelphia Museum, Tom, if you're there mm-hmm. sometime... Along one of the hallways, they have a portrait of Alexander that Mary actually did. It's actually one of her best-known paintings, and it's hanging there at the Philadelphia Museum of Art. They were very close, and as a matter of fact, it's during one of these trips to Paris that he gets his brilliant idea, which we'll talk about in a second. Now, Alexander, as I said, he did work on the railroads, um, but through a series of promotions, he'd be the lead engineer, later he would be the vice president, would be very savvy, and would come up with a lot of revolutionary ideas for the company. And then in 1881, he actually retired from the industry and devoted a lot of time to like horses and the things that men do mm-hmm. when they a retire. A gentleman farmer. But he was actually pulled back into the company. He was brought back in in 1899 because he had the he really had the authority, the vision, and he was also a very bright guy. So he becomes president in 1899, and his one of his chief goals is to cross that darn Hudson River. He's tired of it. He wants to get across. He wants to be able to pull his trains into Manhattan. But by this time, he's not the first person to have wanted to do this. There's actually been a couple other schemes before this to try to cross the Hudson River. Right. Which the reason it's so difficult, of course, we should mention, is the fact that the Hudson River is a mile wide. With technologies at this time, it was challenging to be able to cross it. Right. People had all kinds of crazy schemes to get across. Most involved bridges. There were other attempts with tunnels. I'll just focus really quickly on Mm -hmm. one. On one bridge. The North River Bridge bridge of a man named Gustav Lindenthal. Now, Gustav was born in what's the Czech Republic today, and he was trained in Switzerland and Austria. He came over and eventually had this plan to build a giant suspension bridge over the North River. Now, when I'm talking giant, I mean Mm -hmm. giant. The his plan, which would have picked up passengers and trains, this would have been a bridge for trains, and I okay. think some trolleys too. Uh-huh. They would board on the Jersey side and come down at 35th and 7th Avenue. There's a lot of area between 7th Avenue 
and the Hudson River, <laughs> mind you. So yes. this bridge was going to be soaring over a solid chunk of the west side. Like a quarter of Manhattan Island would be underneath <laughs> this gigantic bridge. Right. Well, he actually got a charter in 1890 from Congress. It, it was a matter of national interest um, and approached different railroad companies, including the Pennsylvania Railroad, because he knew that they were so interested. The price was very high. The Pennsylvania Railroad would have had to contribute over $100 million to this project, uh, which was a big chunk of change. The biggest problem, however, was that because this was a federally chartered bridge, well, it had to be open really to other companies as well. So this required actually a coalition of different railroads to come together to pay for the bridge. And so the New York Central, the Pennsylvania, and other railroads were going to be contributing money, none as much as the Pennsylvania Railroad. It was an odd sort of coupling of uh, competitors to pay for and finance this bridge. Ultimately, because of those conflicts of interest, the whole bridge plan collapsed. Once once one falls out, then they're all just going to start pulling out. Because it's like the smaller ones are like, well, if you're going to pay for it anyway, like you have to, then why should I give any money? And Vanderbilt really at the end of the day was saying, okay, I've got Grand Central Station. I have really a monopoly on passenger service into Manhattan. Remind me again why I should be financing the Pennsylvania Railroad's entrance to Manhattan. It just doesn't make any sense. So in 1901, he pulled out, the whole thing just kind of stopped. Well, essentially, if Penn Railroad wanted to do this, they had to forge out on their own. Now, one thing that really makes them think about tunnels over bridges, well, it's like two little... Tu- tunnels over bridges. Choosing tunnels over bridges. Trains are now starting to become electric um, because you can't have a steam-operated train under a tunnel for a mile for right. some very obvious reasons. Fire and steam and smoke and the general unpleasantness of such a ride. Alexander while visiting his sister, Mary, in Paris, they actually had an electric trains and tunnels. Um, and so he saw that was inspired by this and decided, well, we can do that here in Manhattan. We can do that. This, though, would be a far larger job. Let me explain. It would actually require digging tunnels of 6,600 feet worth of tunnels, essentially. He had a group of engineers. The two prime engineers were Charles Jacobs and Samuel Ray, who will come into the story uh, more prominently at the end. Here's what they have to do, Tom, and here's what they did. But it's just, it's it's really, like, mind-blowing. The tunnels from the Hudson to Manhattan, there would be two tunnels that would start at the Hackensack Meadows. They would drill through these cliffs. They would then go under the Hudson River, back up into Manhattan, and would complete at 33rd Street at a terminal that they would build. But that's not the only thing they were building. Those tunnels Mm -hmm. then would continue under the entire island of Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Then they would go under the East River. At that point, they would then branch off into two separate types of tunnels. One of them would connect to the Long Island Railroad, which was purchased by Penn Railroad in the year 1900. That would allow those trains to finally pull into Manhattan as well, but pull into Penn Station. The other branch would go into Queens. That's where Penn Railroad would have a train yard that they would build in Sunnyside, Queens. Not just any train yard, Tom. This would be the largest train yard in the world. 
on top of all of this, on top of this like unbelievable magnum opus of tunnel drilling, they the trains themselves would have to be redesigned for better efficiency through all of these new tunnels. And they would also be designed for third rail electrification, and all of them would have to be fireproof. And on top of all of that, on top of the tunnels, literally on top of the tunnels, we'd be talking about building a grand terminal that would be sort of the showpiece, the crown jewel on top of the entire network here. Funny enough, though, after building all of this up, Jacobs, the engineer, he claimed that the whole thing could be built for about $40 million. Mm -hmm. That's less than the price of this bridge. Well, as incredulous as we are in even describing it, the stockholders of of Penn Railroad were even more stunned. The price of Penn stock dropped to like record lows. On top of all of this, oh right, you needed to get the city's permission. Now, getting this pushed through City Hall in in the year like 1900, um, good luck. This is powerful democratic machine called Tammany Hall that you have to kind of get things pushed through. You basically couldn't get anything done in go- New York government without greasing some palms, as they say. You had very powerful political boss who controlled who was in power and any legislation had to go through him so he'd get his supporters behind it, but he would also be getting paid off in the meantime. For instance, in 1902, Alexander Cassatt decided, and Alexander was like, I will not kowtow to this Tammany Hall bribery. I will not participate. You know, his leverage was the fact that this is going to create thousands of jobs for the city. Well, the aldermen... Which is like the city council? Yes, it is. They had a legitimate concern. I mean, giving this much power and much city property to one company... A lot of these leaders were understandably scared. I mean, the city didn't have a vast train system that they could put in them in its place in 1902. However, Cassatt, he was not going to bend. He was not going to fall for how business was usually done. And eventually, just after holding out for a while, they approved it. They approved the job. It got pushed through because, right, public opinion and the press turned against Tammany Hall as well because Tammany seemed like they were withholding progress and withholding jobs from the city. More on the story of Pennsylvania Railroad and the making of Penn Station after the break. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom 
for the Enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Meet Stacy. Stacy's on the hunt for a new pair of trendy glasses. Call me picky, but I just can't find the one. Luckily for Stacy, Walmart Vision has virtual try-on. Now she can try on hundreds of frames virtually, then upload her prescription and get new glasses delivered right to her door. Really? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, the hunt just took a turn for the better. Buy your next pair of glasses with virtual try-on from Walmart. Welcome to Easy Eye Care. Welcome to your Walmart. Restrictions apply. See walmart.com for details. So they started digging the tunnels. I'm not going to go into the minutia of uh, engineering technique here. Well, did because, it go smoothly? Let's just say they started digging. I mean, I find this incredible. Um, like it's, it's sometimes difficult for me to like put my foot in the proper pant leg in the morning. So it's hard mm-hmm. for me to understand how <laughs> groups of people can start on either side, one on the Hudson, one on the Manhattan. They start right. drilling the tunnels and they start drilling and they met in the middle. Which they did because it would be faster, obviously, than just starting on one side and drilling straight through to the other. But just require this extraordinary amount of precision and measurement. And they right. had, but luckily they hired crews from all over the world who had all this experience in drilling tunnels. They would call them affectionately. They would call them sand hogs. Right. There was, you know, as they were drilling, there was this constant risk of flooding. You had the fear of the bends, of course. Remember from the our Brooklyn Bridge. Right. Uh, Talking episode. about the caissons. The first tube was actually finished on March 11th, 1904, and the second tube was finished six months later because they couldn't do them at the same time because the vibrations from the work mm. would disturb the other, so the, the one had to be staggered behind the other one. Amazingly, there was even, like, they like were having some fun. So when the first tunnel was dug, they actually lowered one of these newfangled automobiles and so and drove it through, and it, it would actually be the first car that would drive underneath the Hudson well before the um, Holland Tunnel was even built. Wow. You know, meanwhile, on the East River side, they were dealing with a lot of different other things because through Manhattan, there were underground streams, there was quicksand, it was just consistency was different. And they would have to, they did this thing, which actually the subway did as well, called the cut and cover method because it was weakening things. They just decided, well, we'll just dig a hole from the top and dig down. Which they still kind of do today, which is rip up the street, cover it with wood during the day, and at night, open it up and just drill away. The the East River tunnels were finally completed. The first train that went through on the East River side was actually, they put a tube right before the two sides actually met. They put a tube through it, and they had a little toy train, and they had a little doll on it. So she was the first lady to go through <laughs> the train on the East River, the first one to be underground. Isn't that, isn't that precious? There's one more thing I forgot, Tom. 
Um, one of the most incredible, amazing things about the Hudson River tunnels in particular, after they built them and they got them all complete and they were about ready to go, the engineers realized something kind of unusual was happening. What's that? The tunnels were moving. They were moving with the tides, moving with the ebb and flow of the tides. They were affected by the moon, Tom. The Hudson River, the Hudson wow. tunnels were affected by the moon. So when the tide would go up, the tunnels would rise a little bit, and when it would go down and the river would fall a little, they too would go down further. Is that y- it? Yes. The engineers they sat and they scratched their heads for many well, months. That'd be disconcerting, yeah. Um, and so, the, what if they broke? What if they snapped at some point and you know the river raced into the tunnels? Millions and, and millions flooded. Yeah, yeah, they might have completely gone out of business. Hundreds might have been killed. Now we had one faction of engineers who were like, "Well, we need to really nail them down like, to fasten them." To fasten them, and then there were there were others that were like, "Well, you know what? If you nail them down, they'll be too rigid and they'll snap." So here's the crazy thing, Tom. Guess which side won? Uh, The side that chose correctly? The side that chose correctly were those that said, let's leave them alone. So when you travel through those tunnels today, just know in the back of your mind that the tunnels... Go at high tide. Go go at high tide. (laughs) The tunnels move. The tunnels are still moving. Now, um, of course, you know, so I've been talking about all the tunnels, which we don't see, but the public persona of all this work was, of course, the terminal that was going on. And th- so, th- and that was quite an undertaking. I know, in but you almost forget about the terminal because it's such a drama to get the, the railroad into Manhattan and out of Manhattan. So once they realized that they were going to be coming into the city finally once and for all, and they knew the location of the proposed terminal, they had to buy up the parcels of land that were already there. So they chose that section between 31st and 33rd Street and between 7th Avenue and 9th Avenue. And that was the, I believe, the Tenderloin District, if I recall. All right. Notorious area, actually, between 23rd and 42nd Street and between 5th and 7th. The area that was full of gambling parlors and whorehouses and drug dens. And it was a vibrant neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) A salacious neighborhood. There were also tenements. I mean, there were people living there. Oh, sure. And there were shops, too. And, and, you know, some factories. And and on these blocks that Pennsylvania had really sort of scouted out, there were all of these things. Tenements and stores and factories. And people who had their livelihoods and businesses, they needed those parcels of land. Penn Railroad was smart about this. They formed uh, separate business entities, and those then hired other contractors, really, to go out and buy up these parcels of land. So people were all of a sudden flooding the market, trying to find these titles and buy from the landlords, and they were competing with each other, too. Even some of the people who were trying to buy on behalf of Pennsylvania Railroad didn't realize who they were buying for, because (laughs) the word could not get out to the press that it was Pennsylvania Railroad. Because, of course, then there would just be a field day because people would know that they could price gouge and it did leak out to the press. People became suspicious because all of a sudden all the landlords were being approached uh, to sell their property. Well, once they had actually acquired all the land, they started the excavation work. You know, they had eight acres of land to excavate. They first had to knock down all these buildings and apartments and such. And then once that was done, they had to start the digging process. And the digging went on for years, really, because it was such a monumental affair to get deep enough. Think how deep those tunnels were. It wasn't like Grand Central Station, where you walked in and you were almost 
on level with those platforms. This was so much further down. And didn't they even have to suspend Ninth Avenue in the air? I mean, basically, they were digging around Ninth Avenue, and so they had to. Uh, but the traffic was. Well, there was a Ninth Avenue elevated railroad. Oh, and, right, right. And but they actually built their own mini railroad, which I like. They had a little working locomotive on a track that would go deep down, and the workers would fill it full of dirt and debris right. and whatnot. And then the little locomotive would puff and chug its way up toward Ninth Avenue on a track and then continue and head out to the Hudson River where they, it would offload into some barge that would go off to God knows where and dump it. Uh-huh. So they had their own little mini railroad that was helping them clear out and excavate this land. Adorable. It is. There's a cute photo. Well, once the word leaked out that they were looking to build a new station, they obviously knew that they were going to invest this much money in getting into Manhattan. They weren't going to do some hack job on the station. So Cassatt reached out to the nation's most famous architecture firm, McKim, Mead & White, to do the design. So he actually asked them. They were just to show like their reputation at the time. At the same time that the firm was working on Penn Station, they were also redoing the east and west wings of the white house <laughs> wow and they were that. they were laying out the um the mall in washington dc so preeminent and beaux-arts also and right beaux-arts right they believed in the city beautiful mm-hmm. movement which was that architecture should help organize and give some order to the chaos the increasing chaos of urban existence and they really looked back at classical structures and found inspiration in great, you know, Greek temples, Roman temples. So it's no surprise then that Charles McKim, who was the lead architect here, he was proposing to Cassatt a big monumental structure that had echoes, again, of great Roman monuments. In fact, the main waiting room that he designed would look like the great Roman baths. The neighborhood watched as the construction began finally in 1908. First, the steel skeleton of the structure emerged from the ground, and that was the first chance for the neighbors to look and say, holy cow, this thing is going to be enormous. Well, this was, I mean, keep in mind Grand Central Terminal, the one we know now, was not even thought of at this time. And as part of this whole plan, again, this is sort of the frosting on on the cake or on the rail line here. Uh-huh. They also needed that space between 8th Avenue and 9th Avenue. They had bought that space. They had excavated it because the trains would be underneath that, right? But they didn't need the, the land on top of it. So... Cassatt, in another stroke of genius, sold that off or convinced the U.S. Postal Service to take on that lease and to build a central post office there. And and that building is still with us. That building is still with us, and that gives us, and that comes into the story later too, but that also gives us an opportunity to imagine what this Penn Station looked like, because the two really complemented each other. It's a smaller, right, a smaller version. It's smaller. It's less imposing, but it's still a beautiful piece of classical Beaux-Arts style work. And so just imagine that reflected across the street on the other side of Ninth Avenue. And the Penn Station structure itself was made a pink granite. um, And along the 7th Avenue side, it had a whole colonnade. Of of the Doric columns, Doric right? Doric columns, right, that you would pass through to get into this temple to transportation. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it really was. I mean, the, it was the, the waiting room was like 277 feet long. This was the largest indoor space in New York City and one of the largest in the world, bigger than, I think, uh, St. Peter's Basilica. 
So it would be humbling. It would be inspiring. Other features included in a long arcade of shops. Two restaurants, one for fine dining and one for more casual counter service, a men's and a women's、uh, waiting area, and a men's smoking lounge, so men could just go out and puff.、Um, a medical clinic, even a two-cell jail. The thing that when you think about the the dreamlike memories, when you see these pictures of old Penn Station, the thing that grabs me the most are the pictures of the concourse. Because what's so distinctive about it is it has this like steel latticework, and it just seems to go up forever. And then that ceiling is made of glass. It was all about airy, open spaces with the light coming down. You know, because when you'd enter into the concourse behind the waiting room to actually get down into the trains, you'd be at street level there. You'd have to descend because, of course, the trains were so far down. So the platforms were below you. The upper floors were also made of glass, so the light could travel through those. McKim, Mead, and White had thought about all of these details: how to get the most light in, how to make it the most awe-inspiring. Experience. So the tunnels actually opened in September of 1910,、um, but they ran before they opened the terminal. They actually ran two weeks of dry runs with no passengers. Like they, all the employees were there, but it was like they just wanted to make sure that everything absolutely ran on time. So finally, the very first trains ran out of Penn Station in November of 1910. They claim that a one hundred thousand people entered Penn Station that very day just to observe the station. Many of them took the trains, but many of them just sort of like wanted to see what all this was about. There was an initial fear that people would be unwilling to ride in these really long, dark tunnels, but I mean that was obviously unfounded. So Penn Station and the improvements to Penn Railroad were a huge success. The sad part, though, is that Alexander didn't get to see them. He died in December of 1906. However,、um, Samuel Ray, who I talked about, was one of the engineers that worked on the tunnels. He actually became the president in 1913 and was president for a really long time and is, was one of the most influential and most beloved presidents of the Penn Railroad station. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, they built a statue to him in the old Penn Station, and that statue. You can still find today as you enter Madison Square Garden. On next week's show, we'll look into the question of how a train station so majestic and stunning as Penn Station can suddenly become a burden and an eyesore. Return back here next week for the story of the destruction. Of Penn Station, visit our website BoweryBoysHistory.com for some dazzling photos and graphics from Penn Station's early days. You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at BoweryBoys. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not.